I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is one of the industry's smartest analysts, and it's great to welcome him back to the show. David Flandro is the Managing Director of Analytics at HX, the tech and research focused part of the Howden Group. And today we're dissecting the state of the market after the 1121 renewals. David has had a long career in the financial markets and at major broking houses, and is one of the best people I know at expressing often very complicated ideas and theories in the plainest of English. He also has a great sense of humour and is always a brilliant company, which means that while the English may be plain, the discussion and the mood is always lively. In this podcast, we discuss a lot of the topics raised in HX's Hard Times 1-1 Renewal Report. I highly recommend you read this in conjunction with your listen today. There's a link to the report in the notes. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. David, thank you so much for giving me some time. It's been a hell of a renewal. I've been really enjoying reading your renewal report, Hard Times. In that, you mentioned that this is a rational hard market, not one that's been driven by any kind of capital shortfall, but one more about a market that's decided it needs to charge more for the risk that it's taking on. Now that we're through this renewal, how much longer do you think this market's going to stay in that rational mode? Very good question. Well, thank you, Mark. It's nice to be back. And you're right. The market definitely cleared at 1-1. It wasn't a capacity shortage-driven market with people panicking and not being able to fill orders for sure. But nevertheless, rates online went up. And I think that is rational. We've had soft market underpricing for a long time. There have been more frequent catastrophes, certainly in the last four years. We outlined social inflation, lower investment yields, the the overhang from COVID-19. All of those factors together mean that reinsurers in particular, but also commercial insurers were pushing for higher rates. And the interesting thing about 2021, of course, is that everybody almost uniformly across all business classes got those increases. But you're right, it is rational. 
It is a correction from really cyclical lows. How long it lasts really depends on all of the dynamics that I just mentioned and how they play out. I think that it's perfectly fair to say that over the last two years, mid-year reinsurance renewals have been up more than they have at January 1st. Given what happened in the United States last year with the ratios, hurricanes and wildfires, I I certainly would not want to bet on U.S. markets going down mid-year. So I think we can at least expect a so-called rational market to persist through the year. What happens in a year's time? I mean, that's a fool's game betting on that one, so I won't go there. But all of the cyclical factors are in place right now for a sustained turn from a low bottom, except for oversupply of capital. We have plenty of capital. I suppose what's going to influence this rationality is how much money or how confident everybody is that the price they're charging today is the right price at which they can, in a normal cat year, make a decent return for their investors. Now that all the scorecards are in, what's your gut feeling for where we are? What sort of combined ratio in an average cat year, which I know doesn't exist, what is the industry, on the reinsurance industry, for example, writing to in aggregate this year? Obviously, it's going to be better than what it was last year. It's going to be a lower theoretical combined ratio than it was last year. But where do you think we're at? When I heard that you might be asking me this question, I thought about looking it up on, you know, just looking at forward combined ratio estimates for all the different major carriers and forward ROE estimates. I didn't do that. But I think that here's the thing. Back in the old days, you used to be able to write to a combined ratio of 103. You got an investment return of six. You levered up net technical reserves to equity three and a half to one. And then you get an ROE of 12. That was the global multi-line P&C model. Of course, now, if you're a reinsurer in continental Europe, it could be that your government 10-year securities have negative interest rates. So you're not going to get anything in terms of yield or very little in terms of yield. So the combined ratio must be lower. And I would have to say, depending on gearing and depending on business mix, you would be aiming for something in the low 90s, maybe mid 90s at worst. And then in terms of ROE, I don't know any investor who's going to get out of bed for less than 12, even if you argue that your cost of capital is lower than 12. So that's what people are aiming for on a normalized basis with a normalized cat load, maybe even a little bit bigger than normal cat load. And yeah, that's kind of what you need to maintain your cost of capital. I would say low to mid 90s and low teens on the ROE, at least on a prospective basis. Whether that happens is a different story. David, is that really fair of investors to think that we can still make the same ROEs we used to back in when we used to get five or 6% risk-free returns? Surely they should be readjusting, recalibrating. We used to get 12, but now we can, if we can get six, we should be happy, shouldn't we? Because we get negative everywhere else. Well, if we were just going to get six, you wouldn't have any publicly traded companies or any, or you wouldn't also wouldn't have any investment inflow into the sector. So you're absolutely right. Investors are very demanding in this environment. They see insurance and reinsurance as anti-cyclical, and it is an opportunistic play for many of them currently. It's also a yield play for a lot of investors. I mean, insurance companies, particularly in the primary space, have higher yields than just about any other sector except public utilities. So that's another reason why we get the inflows. But in terms of fairness, if you go back 10 or 15 years, again, the underwriting returns on a calendar year or accounting year basis were just lower than they are now. Now, remember, it's important to look at these types of things over an entire cycle. But yes, investors would be perfectly happy 15 years ago to invest in an insurance company that had a combined ratio of over 100 because they knew that with that higher combined ratio, they could make up a higher proportion of it on the yield or investment return. Now you can't. And so if you want to make that type of ROE, you have to have more disciplined underwriting, if you will, on an incurred basis. 
and that seems to be one of the things that's driving rates higher across the board, in addition to the fact that we are coming off of cyclical lows in a lot of classes. I suppose it's not our job to say it's not fair. I suppose we just have to deal with the reality. This is what the capital wants, and so that's what the capital is going to have to get, otherwise it's going to go somewhere else, right? Indeed. And to be fair, the insurance sector has been able to deliver that. Even with high cat years, we have been able to deliver reasonably good returns and particularly good yields to investors over the last couple of years. Again, we're seen as anti-cyclical, so we're not actually that correlative to the rest of investor portfolios that we might actually increase sharp ratios for investors who are multi-classed. I'd like to get back to that price adequacy. So what's your gut feeling? Obviously, price adequacy must have improved because pricing has improved uh, and we haven't suddenly taken on a whole ton of new risk. So where do you think we are in that, just to press you on that? And also, I suppose it's relative to, we know we've all come off a trough. How low was that trough relatively? And how bad was it? Was it a very unprofitable trough? Or do we think we managed to still scrape break even through the bottom of that trough? I think that it depends on the class and line of business that you're talking about. If you're talking about cat retro, the trough was very low indeed. I think it was probably in 2016. That might be one of the lowest of the low troughs. And you're seeing, of course, the biggest recovery in cat retro. The casualty reinsurance trough was likewise quite low, especially as you get back into that same sort of period. If you get back into 16 and 17, the bouncing off of that trough was higher. Property catastrophe reinsurance worldwide it's still pretty close to the trough. Um, And this is the same trough that we were in back in the early 2000s. And then again, in 16 and 17, we are up a little bit. We had an increase in 2017. Then we had a couple of years of relatively flattish renewals. And this year we've had an increase, we think of about 6%, but we're still quite a ways away from where we were after Tohoku Fukushima. So there may be yet some way to go in reinsurance, but that may be dampened a little bit by the overcapitalization, at least on paper that we have in the sector. And then don't forget about commercial lines. You know, when you look at property casualty and FinPro, the trough again was probably in the the 2016 era immediately prior to Irma. I mean, financial professional lines have come up really significantly since then. I'm going to eyeball this here and get it wrong, but it's high double digits percentage that the financial lines have come up and casualty and property are following. So we are coming off the trough and we probably have some way to go in some classes of business still throughout the rest of the year. It will vary very much case by case, line by line. Something else that's happened obviously in 2020 is we've had a class of 2020 like we had in 01, 05. In fact, there's a really good section in the report. I recommend to all listeners that they have a good look at that. Some really interesting analysis of the nature of this capital raising in 2020. And it's coming through, it's coming through in similar numbers as it did back in 01 and 05. What does this renewal, this orderly, rational, increasing renewal, what does it really tell us about what the prospects are for some of those new entrants in 2020? Do they have the same sort of opportunity they had in 01 or 05? It's a different type of opportunity because in 01 and 05, the new entrants were selling, obviously, their expertise. And I certainly wouldn't want to downplay that. We had a lot of brilliant people entering in 01 and 05. But one of the things that they were selling was their capital and their capacity. You can make the argument this time around that there really isn't the same capacity and capital crunch. And what the entrants are selling is product. That's kind of the difference. The market since really after the financial crisis has been on paper overcapitalized. It really is about getting the risk to meet the capital. And I think that's what these new startups are about. If you look at who they are, a lot of them are the same people that you dealt with in older companies that have been around for a lot longer. They're starting up new companies and they're saying, we're coming to you with capacity, but we're also coming to you with product. And we're trying to differentiate according to that product. And the capital that's been raised for these companies in 2020 is now about the same nine months in as it was after September 11th or 
at that same trajectory. We're not quite as high as we were after Katrina at this point, but there's definitely a class of 2021. There can be no doubt. And for me, they're offering product and risk transfer expertise, not just capacity. And I certainly agree with you that it's a very seasoned crew of uh, new entrants, isn't it? There's no neophytes there. They all know what they're doing. Something else about the renewal that was striking, I thought, was certainly anecdotal evidence of a little bit more confidence on behalf, certainly in the casualty sphere, of Cedent's willing to call reinsurers bluff a little bit and threaten higher retentions if reinsurers didn't play along with slightly looser terms on some of the casualty proportional business particularly. Is that a sign that people are much more confident that what they're putting on their books is genuinely profitable, that they've got ahead of a lot of these adverse loss trends and other things? I mean, possibly. I would almost, I don't want to be dismissive at all, obviously. I would put that down to the ebb and flow of renewals that we almost always see, Mark, when we come into renewals in October. I mean, if had we had Monte Carlo and Baden-Baden and Cirque this year, we would have come in in October with three insurers pounding the table for higher rates and cedents saying, no way, we're going to be flat down. And then as you get closer to December, you kind of tend to meet in the middle. Terms and conditions were very interesting this year. They were a reason why the renewal got started early. And I think it was also a reason why the renewal was rather late. And you're right, reinsurers did push really hard for exclusions, I think predominantly on silent cyber and on communicable disease, which was COVID driven. And then that led to things kind of dragging on a bit at the end. It's notable that Lloyd's actually required property treaty to either specifically or explicitly include or exclude silent cyber, which prolonged some renewals. But I didn't get the sense that this was anything more than the usual. Again, I wasn't in every renewal, clearly. There may have been examples that I missed, but I didn't get the sense that this was anything too much more than just the usual back and forth from, say, October to December in terms of like, let's exclude everything. Okay, no we're going to give you th- these exclusions and, and these terms and this price. That was pretty normal for me. And I something like cyber, silent cyber, there was a lot of UK prudential regulatory drive exactly. that as well, right? Absolutely. The, Not, yeah. I mean, there was a PRA. I don't think it was necessarily just lawyer. The PRA was certainly standing behind Lloyd's probably pushing. I think that's right. I mean, you know that I've been arguing for the establishment of a standalone cyber market for a long time, and this will facilitate that. Well, you've mentioned about this TNC terms and conditions renewal. Certainly, the field seems to be that we've had those losses on reserves being racked up on the BI, business interruptions, short tail side of people's books. And anecdotally, it would seem that in 2021, there is no more cover for ongoing business interruption arising from communicable disease. We've sort of sorted out the short tail side. Do you think there's been enough done on the long tail side? Have there been actual casualty excessive loss and casualty proportional exclusionary discussions? Certainly more so than last time around, yes. And wherever reinsurers were able to obtain that around communicable disease, they certainly tried. Whether or not it's sufficient, I don't know. We were talking about this before the call, weren't we, about emerging risk. And you may have seen in our report the section on litigation finance and court verdicts. That could be a fairly toxic mix if there is an emerging risk that we're not seeing right now in the U.S. regulatory and legal environment. I'm talking about the the plaintiff's bar in particular. Then there might be exclusions that reinsurers would have liked to have put in that they don't even know about yet, kind of like what happened last year with communicable disease exclusions, right? So the answer really is, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to tell you every emerging risk that could happen from COVID. It appears that we have inserted explicit exclusions where appropriate for ongoing business, given the knowledge that we have. 
And we have done that pursuant to the clarity that was asked for by the PRA and other regulatory bodies around the world. Beyond that, it's kind of guesswork. And do you think on the casualty side, is it just harder when your insurance operative clause is saying, I'll insure you for your legal liabilities? Is it just harder to say, I'll insure you for legal liabilities, but not from anything arising from COVID? Because if you're legally liable and you've done everything you possibly can to avoid any loss, then surely you would you would hope your insurer would stand by you. You would hope so. Absolutely. Yes. And I think that the way that the insurers and reinsurers got around that this year is, again, and this really feeds all the way back into the conversation about risk premium and about the market being risk-driven rather than capital-driven. Because we've just been through a white swan and a black swan scenario, the level of risk premium in the market is higher. There is a knowledge now, but there are a lot of unknown unknowns out there. And so one way that carriers have dealt with that is by stepping back from the business. Another way is by charging more. Another way is by putting in exclusions. All of that means that risk-adjusted rates online have gone up. Whether or not it's completely sufficient, we won't know for a while. Which one was the white swan and which one was the black swan? The white swan was just pandemic. We all knew that there was going to be a pandemic at some point. We've had SARS and swine flu and bird flu and everything else. But typically, we've put the losses on those pandemic risks through the life side of the balance sheet, not necessarily the non-life side, except maybe a little bit on BI. The black swan was the civil action. I mean, the government shutdowns and the complete halting of economic activity. I don't think that anyone thought that a pandemic with the, how do I put this, the epidemiological significance of COVID-19, which is very different from, say, a Spanish flu, would nevertheless cause a complete economic halt. That was a black swan, I think. Maybe some could have predicted it, but I certainly didn't. Now, last time we discussed potential quantum, industry quantum for COVID was very, very early, and it was probably a podcast we did back in March 2020. Things have moved on quite a long way since then. Uh, certainly in a report, there's more optimism, perhaps. Do you think this is going to be a, an affordable loss and something that we can pay for out of hopefully nice, positive cash flows over the next few years? It's a great question. It's a question that I've been getting asked all year, probably starting with you back in March, Mark. And as you know, I have been consistently on the low end of COVID loss estimates. We have always said, initially at least, that the 100 to $200 billion loss estimates, the largest insured loss since the war rhetoric, we thought that was too high. And I think that at least in terms of what we can catalog now, which includes IBNR, we're at about 30 billion. Now that's not a small loss by any means, but it's the size of about a medium-sized hurricane. It's not 200 billion and it's not the largest insured loss event ever. That said, we must be humble. COVID will continue to develop, obviously, and it will go higher. There's no doubt about it. And it, it will get to the point where it's quite large, but the consensus projections for COVID right now put it at about 60, so double the current amount. And that would still put it above 9-11 and below Katrina in real terms. So it's very big, but given the capital levels that we have in the sector right now, it seems eminently absorbable. Now, that is, again, using our current assumptions about the trajectory. If there is some great emerging risk from COVID, like take-home risk, if you've got a big loss that comes out that none of us are anticipating right now, obviously it could be higher. But given if we're on a logarithmic curve, it looks like this is going to be absorbable. And in terms of cash flows as well, it'll come out of our profits for the next four or five years. Because presumably right now, in terms of paid, we're still incredibly low on actual paid dollars. That's true. And even if you look at the first nine months of profit for the insurance sector, we use a global composite of 30 companies. Earnings were positive in the first nine months, not by very much, but it was not a negative earnings year. So at least right now, it looks like we can pay for this out of cash flow. And we have done 
unpaid. I want to check in with you again. Certainly, we had an interesting conversation on this, probably one of the last times we spoke. We've been worrying collectively as an industry about reserve deficiency in the business. And we've had another fairly sort of stable year with a bit of deficiency, but still some releases. So do you think now you can sort of officially declare that our worry about reserve deficiency on the sort of scale that everyone remembers from the late 90s, early 2000s has not materialized and is not likely to materialize? I think that that's probably right, at least for the cycle that's in the immediate rearview mirror. If you look at 2020 versus 2019, reserving was more favorable in 2020 than it was in 2019 on an accounting year basis, certainly. When you look at reserving on an accounting year basis in a large lost year, you always have to wonder just a little bit, like, oh, we had big accident year losses. Why are calendar year losses so favorable? No, I don't want to imply anything, but that does happen. Nevertheless, we actually... Julian and I wrote a report back in 2016 called Enough in Reserve. And in fact, the fourth quarter of 2016, by our reckoning, was the first quarter since the third quarter of 2005 that reserves were deficient for that 30-company industry composite. And there have been reserve deficiencies, more than redundancies, since 2016, at least up through 2019. So there was a little mini cycle. And part of that actually did drive casualty in the early innings of this casualty recovery. But you're absolutely right. It's nothing like the $300 billion plus that we saw coming through the liability crisis. And yeah, it, it looks like reserves, at least if you take this year's accounting year, looks like they're reasonably stable. Now, as we all know, reserves are very much affected by broader structural inflationary trends and interest rate trends. And you've got a couple of different camps right now, as you always do after any crisis. One camp says interest rates are going to stay low forever and we're going into a disinflationary period. The other camp says we already have inflation in the economy and you just can't see it yet and it's coming through this year. So if we did have an inflationary spike that was unexpected, it could create reserving issues. But here again, I'm just talking hypotheticals. If we look in the rearview mirror, it looks more stable than it did a year ago, for sure. I suppose, is it right then to conclude that during the really soft part of the cycle, say 2013 to 2017, at the bottom, the real trough of the cycle, we reserved more prudently than we did back in 97 to 2001? I think that's fair. Yes, I think that's fair. I didn't hear a lot about cash flow underwriting or the crazy irresponsible stuff that we did 25 years ago. And probably because those underwriters are still around and many of them were quite scarred by that experience of the liability crisis. So there certainly was more discipline in the soft part of this cycle. Don't want to overstate that because reserves can always surprise you. People did get surprised a lot in 02, 03, and 04 on a calendar year basis. And there again, maybe that very caution is what uh, drove people to be more careful in the last cycle. So we did learn something. That's good. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. Talking about other lessons, what's your gut feeling in terms of, well, we seems like we've got this healthy market, rational, well-capitalized, and reasonably competitive, and with new entrants. So how does that bode for reinsurance disputes coming out, potentially coming out of COVID? Do you think that because we've got such a healthy market, we're going to have to be commercial about them and that the disputes are less likely to happen? Of course, we don't have any reinsurers, big reinsurers in runoff, for example, which suddenly don't have that commercial imperative to look the other way anymore. I think that there will inevitably be disputes about coverage. There always are. If 2020 has taught us anything, it is that contract law as written will be honored and observed. The, I think almost all of the rulings that I've read from the various jurisdictions have affirmed that. And it really will come down to better wordings around pandemic risk. Now, what does that mean for the number of disputes that we're going to have? 
I think you're right. And we have a section on this in our report. Litigation is not decreasing. We've seen a 700% increase in litigation finance between 2014 and 2020. Verdicts have doubled over the same period, both in terms of the number of verdicts and in terms of quantum in millions. So yeah, if you have a healthy market with a lot of capital, I think that there is a, an incentive for people to initiate legal action if there's money there to be made. So we just have to make sure that we protect ourselves to maintain the efficient market. Because as you described it, you know, you said we have a good capital position. We have the market clearing, albeit at higher rates in a relatively healthy way, we hope. And we are providing cover to individuals. And it's so important during this period of time that the insurance market stay solvent, stay profitable, and stay rational, because I will put a plug in for the industry in general. We help individuals, we help companies when we pay claims. And we don't get credit for this very much, but we've got something on the order of, what, $5 trillion of premium worldwide as a sector, maybe four. And we're paying a very large proportion of that out in claims all the time, which helps make individuals and businesses whole. So that's a really important part of what we do. And, and I think that we should continue doing it. I'm glad that the sector seems rational and healthy at the moment. It's a good time for us to be providing that service. One last thing I really want to talk about is um, the outlook for demand. I suppose in this zero, low, negative investment environment that we've already spoken about, if you're an insurance company buying reinsurance, presumably that just makes your, you now know for certain as the CFO of that business that your underwriting profits really need to be protected from any volatility. Does that put a really stoke a fire under demand for reinsurance at that point? You'd say, well, I really want to put a vertical and a horizontal box around my underwriting earnings and I want to buy reinsurance and I don't care if it costs a little bit more than it did last year. I think it does. And if you're talking about really long-term periods, if we're going to go multi-decadal and talk about the liability crisis last time, you know, the session rate back then was about 10%. We kind of bottomed out in the 4 and 5% range, I think in 15 and 16, and we're just gradually creeping up from that. So there is a lot more scope for carriers to buy reinsurance, both on the commercial side and elsewhere. Rates are going up a little bit, but particularly in global property cat, we're still pretty close to that long-term cyclical low. It might be a good time to buy more coverage. So yes, I think that there will be more demand just driven by the relatively, and I know that not everybody will agree with this, but over a 20-year period, the relatively reasonable cost of reinsurance. If I were a CEO, I would certainly be considering reinsurance as a form of contingent capital, whether rated paper or collateralized right now. And do you think that out of all the factors out there that healthy increased demand, does it trump everything else? Is it just the best thing? In terms of what's driving the hardening market? Yeah, and what's good for the market? I'm happy to say yes to that, Mark. I think that's right. Increasing demand is really driven by perception of risk right now, as opposed to capital constraint. And I think that's good for the market. It's If you think of it, if you think of counterfactual, if we were in a market that had a total lack of capital and carriers were unable to get the cover that they want because they couldn't afford it, that would be a lot worse, wouldn't it? So I think it's a good sign. I don't want to be too sanguine. I know that I'm accused of being glass half full most of the time, including with COVID. And I don't mean to, but yeah, I think that it's better for the market to be that way than the way that it was during the liability crisis between 2004 and 2005. Terrible accident years and terrible calendar years and rates spiking. That's not what we want. Well, I think on the glass thing, it's, it's very simple. If the glass is being filled up, then it's yeah. half full. And if it's being drunk down, it's half empty. So if, if you, as long as you believe that the glass is being filled, then that's then you can definitely say it's half full. Not a problem at all. So it's not a psychological <laughs> question at all. It's a practical one. Anyway, so David, we've had many, many years of a sort of compression in the leverage of premium to capital. 
i.e. that reinsurers insurers have been able to they've been writing less and less premium for for more capital over decades now over about a decade yeah and looking at the relevant section of your really fantastic report it just looked like we might be moving into a period in which premium leverage might be able to be increased i the same amount of capital is going to be might be able to be put to work with more premium is that is that right or is that was that me just reading too much into something no that is definitionally correct if rates go up and exposures remain the same then there is more premium for the same amount of capital so and that seems to be what's happening right now by our estimation still we are on paper and again i'm going to use that word a lot we are on paper overcapitalized relative to where we've been in the last 20 years certainly yet there could be some sort of reversion to a mean going on but that mean is not 2001 or 2002. The mean looks more like 2010 or 2011, immediately before. And don't forget, some of the some of the capitalization that's in the market is being driven by regulators, i.e. Solvency II and rating agencies who have higher capital requirements perhaps than they did 15 years ago pre-financial crisis. I don't think that's going away, but yeah. If you just look at the premiums to surplus ratio, or if you flip it around and look at the solvency margin ratio, we are reverting a little bit to a mean. But I don't, unless we get into a real crisis, I don't see us voluntarily going back to where we were in the late 90s and early 2000s. And does it probably mean that we don't really need much more capital, that we can get plenty of growth without having to raise loads more capital to say, hey, I need this capital to fund growth? We don't need the capital to fund the growth, but we need the capital to back the risk providers with the right solutions who have the right ideas. And that's what's happening, I think, with the class of 2021. Capital is coming in to back unique and differentiated ideas where people are coming to the market with product that really is materially different from what's out there. So yes, we need capital for that. I also should say that Capital at the margin is always important because we talk about being overcapitalized, but of course, all of the capital that's in the market and that is in our measurements is dedicated to reinsurance somewhere. So if you want to write wholly new risks, you do often need new capital, and that is coming in at the margin, and that's very helpful. It's a sign, again, that we have a liquid and efficient capital market servicing the insurance and reinsurance sector, and long may that continue. So in a word, you're happy, optimistic, looking forward to 2021? sounds like it. Yes, but don't forget, I was happy and optimistic and looking forward to 2020 as well. So don't take that for too much. David, it's always invigorating and enlightening to talk to you. I really always enjoy it. It's always stimulating. I always come away with about 20 more questions than what I started with. So thanks very much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you. All the listeners out there, please make sure you download the report. I'll make sure there's a link in the notes. So please read it. It's full of great insights and really, really interesting. So thank you so much, David, and um, have a great 2021. Likewise, sir. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, 
in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.